come Tuesday, many will go to those voting booths and they will vote on a person that they feel will best take care of them. Did you know that? I'm not sure what you call that, but my word for it is pocketbook voting. They look at their wallet and they decide, okay, who's going to be able to take care of me? And the truth is, that's not all, um, let me use this word, that's not all bad. I know there are legitimate, let's use the word widows here. There are legitimate people who probably feel like, man, the government is about all I've got left. And they hear certain promises and so they, they're going to vote based on how they feel what they feel will give them the best chance of survival. You know what's sad about that is? That, that that setup is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. God's plan for taking care of people, especially elderly and the widows, never did rest with the government. It originally rested with each family and then with the church. Did you know that? Let me show you in 1 Timothy 5 what he's talking about. It's ironic that we're in this chapter just before Election Day, isn't it? First Timothy 5. I don't think it's ironic at all. It's just a God timing thing. He's been doing it for years. As pastors teach through the Bible exegetically, God just has a way of leading His church to what they need to hear at the right time. Because He's the head of the church, amen? And we're simply His servants. So First Timothy 5 is where Paul lays out for this church at Ephesus how they were to take care of widows in that church. Those who were all alone, those who were destitute. So if you came in this morning thinking, man, we're going to talk about widows, how unrelated could anything be? How wrong you are. Because you'll see in several times in this message and in this text just how apropos Paul is to November 2nd, 2008. Now I want to bring your attention to two phrases. So have your pen ready. Make sure you've got something to mark with. And I want you to circle... Uh, I want you to make five circles, but they're really just two phrases, okay? So I hope you're ready to kind of be in class for a few moments. In chapter 5, verses 3 through about 16, he addresses the issue of widows. And he really centers it around two very specific phrases. The first one being the phrase, those widows who are really in need. Say those three words with me, really in need. The first time it's mentioned is found in verse 5, excuse me, verse 3, circle it in verse 3. Then you see the same phrase mentioned in verse 5, really in need. And then you see the same phrase mentioned again in verse 16, really in need. You see that there three times. So Paul is talking about a set of people, a, a group of all alone women who are really in need. And he uses that phrase because there must have been women who maybe weren't in quite as much need. Are you with me? So we're going to see what that is in a little bit. But there is a group of women, widows, that were really in need. And apparently, when they were really in need, they could be added to the list. Now, that's the second phrase I want you to notice. It's found um, in verse, let's see, verse 9 is where one reference is. And then, of course, again in verse 11, you see the word, the words, the list. I want you to circle that phrase. The list in verses 9 and 11. So let me, let me show you the context. We're going to read these verses and, and understand them in a little bit. But I want to kind of give you a backdrop for this. There was apparently in this church at Ephesus, women, and out of these women who were all alone, there were those who were really in need. And if you were determined to be really in need, then you got added to a list. And I believe personally, though it's not said here explicitly in this text, 
I think that list was people. They were widows who would give of their time daily to the church to serve people, to wash feet, to help the poor. And in turn, the church would handle their basic necessities and meet their needs. That's what I think happened. In fact, I can probably show you a couple of times in Scripture where this is proven. Look at Acts chapter 6 briefly, okay? I know it's early in 830 service, but I want you to turn in your pages. Acts 6. A lot of you know this Scripture, but it's when the church was growing very rapidly. Look at Acts 6, 1. It says, The Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebrew Jews. What's the reason for their complaint? Because they're, who's that next word? Their widows were being overlooked in the what? Daily distribution of food. I think that in the early church, there was a daily uh, meals on wheels, so to speak. And as the church grew, uh, this wasn't a right complaint, but it was, a, it was an honest one at least. The Grecian Jews were like, hey, you know, you're showing more, more uh, favoritism to the Hebrew Jews. In other words, the Jews that are, 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 are getting a little more uh, attention here, we want all the widows to have what they need. So it kind of lets you know something. There was a ministry to widows in the early church from the very beginning, wasn't there? A daily ministry to widows. Look over at Acts chapter 9 for a moment. Turn three pages over, four or five pages. And let me show you one of the more famous widows. And I'll show you a reference to the word widows that I think is quite intriguing. Acts chapter 9. Look at about verse 39. Here's a widow named Tabitha. Some of you may know her as Dorcas. Uh, but she was very good at helping people. In fact, verse 38, um, verse 37 says that she became sick. And uh, verse 36 talks about how she was always doing good, helping the poor, which, by the way, are similar phrases to what Paul does in First Timothy when he asks for widows to do certain things if they're on this list. So I think she was on this list. She became sick in verse 38. Verse 39, it says that Peter went with them. They called for Peter to heal her. He went with him, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. Look at the next three words. All the widows. It's like there's this group of them, isn't there? And look down again at verse uh, 41. It says, he called the believers. After he had raised her, he called the believers and the widows. You see that? And I think you can make a strong biblical case that there were a group of women, older women, who, had, who were left all alone. The church kind of adopted. And they cared for their needs, and in return... These widows would often then to the church people and to the community help and wash feet and, and minister to the poor. You might could almost call it like a, a church staff in some ways. They were just there to help and in return they had their needs met. I think that's very intriguing because you, I, I don't know any church in the 21st century that operates this way, including ours. I don't know any. I'm not saying that's a sin. I don't think it's anyone on intentionally neglect. But I think it's interesting that we all talk about, let's be like the New Testament church. But I have yet to find... A group of like, here's our church widows. Here's our church staff. And they're available during the day. And we feed them every day in return. Instead, what we do, we ask the government to do it. And then we vote who can give them the most. Isn't that unfortunate? Paul lays out for us a, a unique way to care for widows. Those who are really in need were apparently on a list. Now, you say, well, Todd, how did you get on that list? That's the bulk of this chapter. The bulk of this text is about how you got on the list. I want us to look at three tests that you had to take, so to speak. You had to pass in order to be on the list. Let's begin in verse 3. He mentions the first one, which is what I call the family test. All right. The Bible says this, Give proper recognition 
or the, the word there is honor. Honor those or give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. If a widow has children or grandchildren, you see the line kind of extended here. In other words, if you're looking for somebody to care for, you can go back even beyond the children. You can go back to the grandchildren. Then these, speaking of the children or grandchildren, should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice. That's an awesome phrase, isn't it? Reminds you of James. If you really want to be religious, then take care of orphans and elderly people. He says they should learn to, to kind of walk the talk by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. And by the word, the word repay, by the way, the word repairing, there's, repaying is an awesome word. It is a great translation. I mean, it literally means to, to give back something. If there's any kids in the room in here, I know we've got a little Davenport that comes in every 830 listens. Let me say something to all the kids here. Uh, your parents are investing in you. And it is biblical and right, and I don't mean this in a weird way, it is biblical and right for them at some point to say, hey, uh, it's payback time. Now, not necessarily money or that they're going to call in the, the investments, but you know what? When they get to the point where they can't care for themselves, kids should repay their parents. Amen? I'm surprised you're this quiet. I thought all you older folks at 830 would be like, go on, preacher, keep on going, you know? This is an older crowd at 830. I'm surprised you guys are kind of... Getting a little, little show me. I'm, I'm okay. It's okay. Maybe it's a little humble. I don't know. But he says that the children and grandchildren should realize that that's their first responsibility. Now watch this. He's saying that you must not be a widow really in need if you've got children or grandchildren to take care of you. Now you're gonna notice a trend in this text. Paul is trying. Now watch this. Don't be offended by this. Paul is trying to relieve the church of unnecessary burdens. Are you hearing me? He's not trying to add to the church's burden. He's actually trying to, uh, to alleviate some burden because it appears that maybe lots of folks were trying to get on this list. And he's saying, listen, the list is legitimate and there are widows in need, but let's make sure that you really are, should be on the list. And he begins to almost do what our politicians ought to do, you know, kind of slice and dice and say, you know what? You ought to take care of your own family first. Don't be asking the church to handle what you ought to handle. Man, Paul is just an incredibly... A wise person in this text under the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says that when we repay our parents and grandparents, this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone. There's a character trait of a, of, a, of a widow in need. The word there is destitute. I think it means there's no one left to help her. Okay? She's all alone. Watch this. She puts her hope in God and, and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. By the way, if you look in the book of Luke, there was a widow who lived in the temple and prayed, and the words are right there in Luke, night and day. So she gave up her life to serve in the temple, and in return, they, she probably received the, her needs were met. Anyway, it says here that a widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. In other words, if, if a widow were to try to get her needs met in some unbiblical way, in some way beyond what the Bible describes, you know what? She may feel alive, but the truth is it's, she's still dead in that sense. And he says, give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame if anyone does not provide for his relatives. And here he kind of gives an overriding principle. And especially his immediate family, he is denied the faith and he's worse than an infidel. Some people have asked me at times, man, there's nothing worse than unbelief. But if you take this verse for what it says, Refusing to care for your own family may be. 
You have an aging parent, an elderly grandparent, and they're the last thing on your mind. And yet you walk into church and, we love God. Really? Paul lays it out very clearly that your resources are linked to a hierarchical chain of command. Catch this, first family. And you should use them accordingly. Your resources are linked to your immediate family and then those right after that, your parents and grandparents. And that's where you should use your resources. Those people matter in your life. When you do that, it's not that you're getting some great glory, but you're allowing the church then to do what it does best, help those widows who really are in need. Are you with me? That's all Paul's saying. Listen, if, if a widow can't pass the family test, don't pass the widow off to the church. Make sure her family knows, hey, listen, you've got to do your job better. I can recall watching my mom and dad uh, maneuver this path in their own life years ago as my dad's mom and dad became ill and needed assistance. And so um, my dad and his brother and sister all got together in Atlanta and said, Mom, Dad, you know, we, we need to probably move you. And they're like, we're not moving we're still driving, too. We're not going to move out of our house. And you probably have been there and heard that. But my dad and his siblings walked them through that. And so my mom and dad sold their house. And they built a different house. And they added a, a, a suite. They would not have built this kind of house just to have it. But they needed his parents to move in. And so they did. And, of course, my grandparents used some of their money and helped out. And, and they lived with my mom and dad for a while. And then my grandfather died. And so my mother, my, my grandmother lived with my parents. And then when they got so bad that they couldn't take care of her, they called a nurse in, and then they put her into a nursing home, and they'd go every day. And my parents, an interesting thing, they would go every day and pick up her laundry and bring it back and wash it and take it back. And they never depended upon the nursing home, even though I'm sure that they would have, I guess. I'm not sure how that works. But uh, they just were very, very faithful at taking care of my dad's parents all the way to the very end. And they left that place open for her. They'd go get her on holidays. And it just was a very difficult road because you, you manage it almost month by month as folks, as they just really age and become very elderly. I watched Marty and Sheila move here with Sheila's mom. And she's part of their family. And they live in the same house. It's just awesome to see church families. I'm sure there's more than just those two I mentioned. But it's awesome to see church families obeying the Bible. Amen. Can I say to you that when you do what you're supposed to do, when you take care of your parents, you're enabling this church to do a better job at what it's supposed to do. Thank you. Kids, and I say words kids there, maybe the folks older than me for sure, who are taking care of their parents and grandparents. You see, uh, to be a widow really need, you had to pass the family test. You had to be completely all alone and destitute. If you weren't, Paul's instructions were, hey, let's, let's get with your family and make sure they're doing their job. He asks another test. He lays out another test in the next few verses. Look at verse 9. He says, No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and then is well known for her good deeds. Now, I want to stop right there and, and, and have you note a couple of things in the text. First of all, notice the past tense verb there, has been. You see that? Underline it. And then move forward to verse 10 and see the present tense verb, is well-known. You see those two verbs? It's almost as if Paul is saying, not almost, it's, it is as if Paul is saying, listen, when you're evaluating widows who are all alone, they must have a past that measures up and a present 
that measures up. And I struggle with this sometimes because often you tend to overlook what people have done in the present tense. You say, well, they just need help. But Paul here kind of lays out a strong case for saying, okay, let's look at how she lived her life and how she is living her life to see if she should get on this list. Are you with me? I mean, the verses are pretty self-explanatory. Some have asked me, they say, well, Todd, do you think the, word, the age 60 is a hardline age? That's a good question. Um, if I were to say to you no, you might think I just not believe in the Bible. But I would remind you that there are oftentimes in this very epistle that Paul said we're not to, women shouldn't wear gold earrings, but most women do. So does he really mean gold earrings? Or is he trying to make a point for something? Are you with me? I think what he's doing here is he's saying when a woman is beyond a childbearing years. Probably at 60, there was not much about a woman that would attract a man. And you may find that hard to hear and offensive, but please don't hear it. Though. I'm just trying to let you know the, the culture and the history. Probably at 60, a woman was unmarriable, if I can say it that way. And so she would be all alone, destitute. And he said, listen, at 60, it's kind of the time when you, church, you've got to just kind of say, listen, um, let's see what we can do. And that may not be true in our culture today, but the question to ask then is this. When is a woman at that place where, uh, I use the phrase, unmarriable, or she can't continue any kind of line to where, where she could maybe raise up kids that would take care of her. So that's what Paul is getting at here. And so he asks about that, and then he says she must have been faithful to her husband. Hey, I like this because it's the same qualification given for elders, except it's flipped around. Elders should be one, a one-woman man. Widows who are on the list should be, let me get this right, one-man woman. Are you with me? They should have been known to have a heart for one man. He has passed away. He's gone. That's what's past tense. And then it says they must have been known for something in the present tense here. And then he gives a list of, of possible things. He says such as, and the first one he mentions is bringing up children. Showing hospitality second. Then washing the feet of the saints. Helping those in trouble. Devoting yourself to all kinds of good deeds. I think you could make a strong case here for something. And I'm probably going to tread on some thin ice. So let me just jump on it. How does that sound? You, and based on some other verses later, you can make a strong case that for a widow to be on the list, she had to not only show a past of being faithful to her husband, but also in that present of, of, of making her home a priority. Where, where her kids and her home, is that was the gist of her life. It doesn't mean that she never worked or did other stuff because she did wash the feet of saints she was hospitable. But notice what's first in this list. Bringing up her kids. I'll say something to you that I, I want you to know. I think in this culture, for a woman to be on that list, it had to be pretty clear that her family was her number one priority for many years. She wasn't just trying to get away from her kids, and she wasn't just trying to run from her responsibility, but her family was like the, the thing she loved the most. Are you with me? When that was well known, Paul said, listen, if there is no family and she's been proven been faithful and she's got a heart for families, then we can put her on the list. That's what I think the list, we talk about the family test and then, of course, the character test, someone who'd really proven themselves to have the right priorities. Then he goes to a third test. He says in verses about 11 through 15, he says, As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. That's pretty clear cut, isn't it? So in this culture, he was saying below 60. 
If you're below 60, you don't get on the list. I'm taking that to mean this. Even if you were destitute, you still don't get on the list. And here's why. Look what he says. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they will want to marry. Because they know they're marryable, they're going to be looking to marry. He says, thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. That first pledge being, I think here, the pledge to be a church widow. Now that may sound derogatory to you, like, you're calling me a church widow. I think this list he's talking about was full of widows who gave their time daily to the church and the church met their needs. He says, listen, if you can't stay committed to that, then don't get on the list because if you're at an age where you're going to want a man, then when you want a man, you're going to say, listen, can I get out of the widow's list? And he said here, that's breaking your pledge. Paul really looked at commitments here pretty important, didn't he? And look what else he says. He says, listen, besides the fact that you're going to, you're going to want to kind of settle in with a man, you'll get the hots for some guy in the local church, you know. Besides that, he says, listen, you'll go in the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And here's what he's saying. This is going to not set well with you. Let me just explain the text in that culture. He says, if you're younger than 60, if you're at a marriable age, even if, you know, besides the fact that you're attracted to men, if you're on this list, there's a lot of times you'll be going and ministering to people, and probably at that age, he's saying, you're going to be tempted to get involved in things that you probably shouldn't get involved with. He mentions here, you'll be idle, going from house to house, you'll become gossipers, you'll be a busybody, you'll say things you ought not say. Now, I don't quite get this. But there seems to be something tied to the sensual desires and then the gossiping and the idling. Almost as if a younger widow who was really marriable was on this list. She might then go from house to house. And instead of washing feet and ministering, she might try to you know, say, well, hey, the guy in this house is pretty, he's a hunk. I think I'll hang out here next hour. And what you really meant to do well, serving the needs of the church and washing feet and helping the poor, it's now kind of subverted because you got your eyes on a man. And you're going to almost see, you almost sense like these women turn into to these uh, headhunters. You know, they're sound like looking for a guy. And so they use their ministry as a quote-unquote church widow on the list to really find a man. Paul says that's not a good situation. That's why he says in verse 14, look with me. That's why I counsel younger widows to marry. And this is really going to get good now. I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity to slander. The third test is what I call the passion test. And if a widow could not pass the passion test, then Paul said, listen, you know, no offense, but you don't get on the list. Why don't you go find a husband instead? Now, here's what I think is interesting. Listen very carefully. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and just kind of dance on this ice I'm on. If you're a, a young widow and you're marriable, and you feel like you're, you're needing some things to do, one of the best things you can do to be incredibly busy and overwhelmed and overworked is to get married and have a child. Now, I'm surprised more moms didn't say hallelujah to that, you know. I mean, don't you think it's really interesting? Paul says, listen, don't, don't have younger widows on this list because they'll start having too much time. Instead, tell them to get married and have children and manage your home. They won't have any time then. It's almost like that he was saying, you know. Isn't that interesting? And man, I can concur with it. I, I mean, women work twice as hard as men in the home, but just as a dad of four, sometimes I'm like, wow, I, I don't know how I'm going to get everything in. Imagine how a woman feels. Man, that's, her, that's what she does. She's responsible to manage this home. 
And many times women are way underappreciated for the amount of work they do. And Paul, I think, here is admitting, if you're finding yourself, you've got too much time on your hands, get married and have a child. That'll take care of that problem. And he says that exact advice to younger widows. Because he knows that will occupy the time that they might have used otherwise in a negative way that would come back to hurt the church. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, uh, 15, excuse me. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. Isn't that interesting? Now, let me just give you a little bit of history here. Verse 15 probably refers to women who were ministering in homes who were younger than what the list mandated. But for some reason, they were in home trying to help. And there were also false teachers who were looking for homes with younger women who weren't married. You can find this in other epistles, by the way. And they would go into these homes, and then they would almost collaborate, and they would deceive these younger women. And you can read this in other epistles, but there's a connection here between their availability and the deceptibility of false teachers. So Paul gives three tests here. He gives a family test. He gives a character test and he gives a passion test when all three are passed paul seems to say in this text then you can take that widow and add her to the list which would mean i think from what we see in scripture she would serve the needs of the church to some extent and then the church would meet her needs as well and before I make some uh, one application and wrap things up, I want to see if there are any questions you might have about this text. Because I know it's, it's just packed with all kind of good stuff in there. And it's got a lot of cultural implications. And I don't assume to have all the answers to that. We're doing everything right in this. But I do want to share with you, I'm learning a lot. Are there some questions you might have that maybe I could address or that maybe someone here might help us with? Anybody have a question? It's called Q-Zone, by the way, in our church. We do this periodically. And uh, I want to see any questions you might have, and you're not afraid to ask in public, go right ahead. Marcia? In our Lighthouse group, we had a lot of discussion about the first one, um, us being responsible of taking our parents back in with us, you know, later in life. Um, the question was, what happens if they aren't um, Christians? What happens if they're not godly? What happens if they have abused us throughout our life? Um, and probably still have passion, you know, some of those other things. How do, is it just, it doesn't matter who you are, what they've done. They're going back to live with you. You know, there's no church to take care of them. Let's put this into context. I, I wouldn't have a lot of answers from life experience, but I will say that in context, the real debate is between the family and the church caring for them. So in the most immediate context, if let's say that was you, if you weren't saying to the elders, listen, take care of my mom or my dad, then really beyond that is probably your choice. I think the real question is, okay, you're asking the church to do something, but Marcia and Vince, we don't really sense you're doing your part. Does that make sense? If you're not asking the church to kind of step in where you should be stepping in, and I don't know that, that the question may not be what you have to do. That's really up to you and God and Vince. As long as you're not pressuring the church to do things you should be doing. Does that make sense? On a broader scale, I will say that, you know, nowhere in this text are we told to take them in. Now, that may be one way you take care of your parents. But if they're resistant to that, maybe there are other ways. Sometimes, uh, I would know some experience, but I've heard of stories where parents are resistant to things like becoming their way of transportation or they don't ever want to receive your help financially. I don't know how that works, but you've probably got a lot of freedom to figure out with your husband, how can we help our parents? That is our job. And then walking you, a lot of freedom there. 
What you can't do is say, listen, we can help my parents. Can you, church, can you do it? That's what you can't do. When that begins to happen, then the church says, Marcia, you can't keep coming to us. That's your job first. Does that make sense? Does that help? Is that an answer at least? A little bit. Okay. I don't want to be unclear or fuzzy with you. One or two more. Any questions at all? Oh, Faye's got a question. Great. Okay. Well, just in our, our culture today, we have so many divorced people. And I would divorced um, be considered a widow? Would um, Or does that ex-spouse have to die first before you're a widow? Yeah. Or? The Greek word for widow is kareth. And this is a... So you pinpointed a great question. Uh, I believe it means a widow by death. And I base that not only on the word widow, but also on the phrase all alone, destitute. Destitute doesn't mean that, well, there's somebody around who can take care of you. They just don't want to. Destitute means all alone. You have been, you are deserved. There's no potential for someone taking care of you. However, I want to say to you, some real godly men, John MacArthur is one. Uh, and I, he's probably my favorite author, by the way. On this point, we disagree. But he believes it means any woman who has been deserted biblically. And you know what? He's about a billion galaxies smarter than me. So, I mean, I, when I hear him say that, I'm like, you know, I need to respect that. But I've probably landed to where I think the words all alone and the, and the actual Greek words seem to be a woman who has lost her husband in death. So I would say it means that. Uh, let me say to you, though, that doesn't mean that a church has, a, has an uncompassionate stance to people in need. Remember, there are ways to help people in need without putting them on the list. Are you with me? The list is when you take care of them every day and you have kind of got this pledge thing going. There's no reason why, let's say, a, a mother who has little kids and whose husband just was a jerk and took off, that the church can't help her. The question, though, is should she be on the list? Are you with me? So as long as we keep it in the context, I think we'll avoid maybe some criticism for being uncompassionate or hard. My heart is not saying, well, if you're not on the list, you can just go find your own soup. That's not my heart at all. My heart is to explain this text that there is a list. And I'm anxious, just as I have been anxious to see how spiritual gifts are implemented in the church, I can't wait to see if God might put together a list at First Family. And if we are compelled to do that, if we don't have to, and what that looks like, I don't know. But... You know me, I just want to obey the Bible. That's all I want to do. And there seems to be a list here in play, doesn't there? Those who have lost a husband by death and, have, and are destitute. But in front of that, if we can help in some ways and be compassionate, by all means, let's do that. But the list is the, is the thing in question. Does that help a little bit? Okay, great. One more. Way back in the back, Cindy. And Marty will run that mic up to her. And then if you have some other questions, feel free to stay around after. We can talk. We'll close out here in a minute. Cindy, go ahead. I understand about taking care of your parents, and my parents are getting to the age where they're going to need that. But in our society, there's so much mobility. My parents don't even live in the same state as me. So how do you – I mean, they're church-going Christians. They're, they're wonderful people, but how do I take care of their needs when they're not here? Wow. You know, there's probably men and women here who can speak to that so much better than me. And I want to ask if you are available for that. Maybe, uh, Cindy, will you stand up again, please? And just maybe have a chance to, everybody looking there to see Cindy, maybe just talk to her about that. I would ask you to do one thing, though. Um, 
culturally, you're right, their, their ability to travel was way limited. So they were all in a very paternal situation, probably grandfathers, fathers, and so forth. Um, it might be, though, you have to, um, I don't want to say you, because I don't know your situation specifically, but let's say it could be anyone. I know I told Julie this. I said to Julie, I said, honey, if your parents get to the point where we need to move and help them, I said, we'll move to Michigan and we'll take care of them. Now, I don't know what that means for me and for his family. I don't know what it means. Do I want to move? No. Do I love her parents? Yes. But if you were to, if you were to list the priorities, her family, which is my family, is in front of this church. Does that make sense? So I think you may have to have the courage to say, okay, we're miles apart, but does that exempt me from having to make some massive adjustments? I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, they weren't miles apart, but maybe there's freedom there to do other things as well. Maybe you can work with their church and say, hey, if we send you X amount of dollars, could you work something out? I mean, I don't know. You have a lot of freedom here. What we've got to do is pull back our heart and say, Lord, look inside. Am I trying to run from something? I know that's not your heart, Cindy. Does that make sense? So enjoy the freedoms God's given you, but don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. Like, if I had to move to take care of my parents, is that on the table? Or am I like, well, I'm not moving. Really? Why not? Are you with me? And those are hard things for me to deal with. But that's my little bit of advice. If you have more experience and have walked that road, please, as a member of the body, maybe minister to Cindy and maybe walk her through some other ideas as well, okay? Hey, uh, let, me, let me leave you one sentence because I probably, together, we've explored this text and we've seen, wow, this, this is just a, this is interesting, isn't it? Well, let me give you one sentence that will help us put some meat around this, kind of some, some hands and, and feet. Families are God's first line of help. I think we can say that biblically and, and outright. And following this guideline enables the church to focus and function fully. And I want to bring a point here to bear with you. As your pastors, one of your elders, and as your lead pastor, I want to say to you, when you take care of your family, you are serving your church. Did you know that? You're serving your church. You're allowing the church to focus and function fully in what really God's called us to do. And we're not burdened down with the unnecessary elements that really families should do. There's a real parallel here to the government. If the government would just do what it's called to do, uh, punish evil and protect good, and then the people would do everything else, we'd be surprised how streamlined and efficient the government would be. But the government's accepted everything else on top of that, haven't they? To where they're so bogged down, they can hardly do anything well sometimes. My fear is that churches are going down the same road. That we've become almost, we can handle everybody's needs. Come see us, one stop for your family. We've got it covered, folks. Whatever you need, we got it. Wow, sounds like some kind of business we're opening. And sometimes I want to say to our churches, listen, let's just make sure that we focus on what the church is called to do and then encourage families to do what they must do. When those are working well, then both flourish. Are you with me? Families have their needs met. Grandparents and parents are taken care of. Kids are trained right with the current perspective of the future and what it might mean. And churches can function and focus well in what their role is. So my point is this. Families really do matter, don't they? Your physical family matters, but guess what else? Your spiritual family matters. Let me talk to folks who may be single here. Maybe older singles who are thinking, Todd, I don't even have a family right now. 
it is vital that you stay connected to a spiritual family. Because if you were to stay single and grow old and be all alone, it'd be awful to be left destitute without a spiritual family in your corner. Are you with me? I walked away from this with two real insights. Both your families matter. Your physical family matters. Hey, moms, raise your kids well. Dads, raise your kids well. Don't make them last. Please, invest. It will pay off later, I promise. And then your spiritual family matters. As we all grow old and as age takes its toll on all of us, some will be left all alone. And if we've been distant and unconnected, how sad it would be at 80, 85, 90, or whatever, to be all alone with no help. That'd be awful, wouldn't it? I'll tell you something. Families matter both physically and spiritually. Hallelujah. I trust that you are placing the right priority on both types of families. Let's pray.